0: Coming up on Episode 7 of the ELB Podcast, what is the state of campaign financing in the U.S.? How have things changed in the Citizens United era? Is the Federal Election Commission dysfunctional? And if so, do personalities or ideology explain the spate of high-profile commission deadlocks? On Episode 7 of the ELB Podcast, we talk to Federal Election Commissioner Ellen Weintraub. So stay tuned for our next episode. Welcome to the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. My guest today is Federal Election Commissioner Ellen Weintraub. Commissioner Weintraub took office as a member of the FEC in 2002. Initially, she was appointed to a recess appointment. She was later confirmed by unanimous consent of the United States Senate in 2003. And she's twice served as chair of the commission. Before she joined the FEC, she worked as a political lawyer at Perkins Coie, and she's been counseled to the Committee on Standards of Official Conduct for the United States House of Representatives. Welcome to the show, Ellen.
1: Thank you, Rick. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, there's been so much attention paid to the FEC and to campaign finance uh, in the last few election cycles, and I expect that's going to only heat up as the presidential election season gets uh, further underway. And so I want to ask you two sets of questions, the first involving the state of campaign financing in the United States, and the second dealing with the Federal Election Commission itself. And so I thought I'd start with a general question, which is, how do you assess the state of campaign financing in the United States today? And how has it changed since you joined the commission in 2002?
1: Well, I think it's changed a lot. It's... um It's changed partially in response to Supreme Court opinions that really have um, gone in in very different directions during that window of time. When when I started at the commission, it was right after the uh, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act was passed, and the first decision that was issued on that, the McConnell decision, upheld it in almost every respect. And a few years later, as you know, we had a bit of a changeover in the personnel on the court and the decision started coming out in the other direction fast and furious, uh, culminating in Citizens United and and the McCutcheon decision. And we're, we continue to see legal challenges to every aspect of uh, campaign finance law. So uh, I think that a lot of people are, um, adapting on the ground to changes in the law. Political practices have changed dramatically since uh, since I started on the commission. And I think right now, it's a big problem that the commission is not adequately responding to changes in the way politics is, is being practiced out there in the real world.
0: So what do you think the primary problem of money in politics is in the United States right now? Or, or, or is there a problem with money in politics?
1: Well, I think there are several problems from my own perspective, um, one being a, a concentration of power amongst the very wealthiest segments of society who are thereby gaining a great deal of influence over decision-making and government, uh, and possibly to the detriment of other people that don't share the same concerns that billionaires have. I think we're also seeing a denigration of what used to be a very transparent system of money and politics, and it's getting less and less so as as time goes on. And I think that's a problem because I think it makes it harder for people to make fair decisions about the information that they're getting when they don't know where it's coming from. I think a lot of people respond, um, are, are frustrated by the negativity on the airwaves and the advertising. And it's part of a general trend of money moving away from the most transparent and most accountable actors the candidates and the and the political parties and moving more and more to outside spending groups to super PACs, and even to c4 organizations c6s uh, other c organizations under the tax code that have very limited disclosure and provide very little information to the public and i think that's a that's a negative trend for democracy the the public is entitled to know this information
0: I want to come back to the C4 question in a second, but I think one thing I did not hear you say, and and correct me if I'm wrong, is I didn't hear you say corruption, and the Supreme Court has talked about corruption and the appearance of corruption as the key questions or the key government interests that could justify some but not all campaign finance limits. Do you think we have a problem with corruption in this country right now?
1: Well, I think it, of course, depends on how you define corruption, and I honestly, if I were king of the world, would probably define it more broadly than the Supreme Court, or at least five justices of the Supreme Court seems willing to define it right now. I think most people in the the country understand corruption as something broader than just bribery. And uh, I think that this is part of a larger problem of a disconnect between Washington decision makers from the FEC and Congress and the Supreme Court and the rest of the country on on some of these really key issues that go to the very basis of democracy in a in a recent poll. And this has been. repeated in in a variety of polls, but just to take one example from the New York Times, 85% of the people who responded said the current system for funding political campaigns should be either fundamentally changed or completely rebuilt. The public thinks this system is rotten. And that is a big problem for our democracy. It discourages participation. And uh, people feel like they don't have a stake in their own government and that their government is not going to be responsive to them. So I think these are all issues that we ought to be concerned about that go beyond just a question of whether individual politicians are actually taking bribes, putting money in their own pocket.
0: And what about on the other side of the ledger? Do you think that the limits that, say, were imposed before uh, Citizens United that were imposed through the Federal Election Campaign Act and through the McCain-Feingold law impinged on a lot of protected speech, speech protected by the First Amendment? Or do you think the balance was about right, the way things were before Citizens United?
1: Well, I think both before and and after Citizens United, it's hard to say that that there are a lot of people that are not being able to speak. Certainly people who can afford to speak can speak. I think the the bigger problem is the amount of resources that go into what is supposed to be free speech. And the people who have access to the microphone, the people who have access to decision makers as a result of their access to the microphone and as a result of their access to funds. Um, uh, going back to another recent Uh, article in the newspapers, the the very small number, just a couple of hundred families who are supporting roughly half of all the political spending in this country is really quite dramatic. And again, leads to a sense, I think, on the part of a lot of people who are very public spirited and want to do good in their community, that they're going to focus on local community activities and pretty much ignore what's going on in Washington. They just don't see that it relates to them at all. I want
0: to come back to the question of transparency, which you raised a few minutes ago. So one of the big developments in Citizens United and and the D.C. Circuit opinion in the Speech Now case has been the rise of these super PACs. Uh, But we've seen other organizations, uh, which you mentioned, uh, such as those organized under Section 501c4 of the tax code, that do lots of political activities, much like super PACs, but they do it without the public disclosure of their donors. And even as to super PACs, the timing of disclosure sometimes leads to spending that Uh, We don't learn about the contributors funding that spending until the period after the election. What, if anything, do you think uh, can and should be done either by the FEC, the IRS or Congress on this question of uh, the disclosure of money that's funding political advertising?
1: Well, I think one of the big problems here is that the, the definition of what is a political committee and therefore uh, what kind of entity has to engage in more fulsome disclosure has been defined down in a way that um, is inconsistent, I think, with anybody's understanding of what it means to be an organization whose major purpose is political activity. Um, Again, I I see this huge disconnect between the way lawyers talk about this, particularly lawyers in uh, in very narrow segments of the of the bar and the way the public understands these issues public doesn't have any problem understanding what a political ad is, and yet we are constantly faced with um, detailed legal arguments over whether particular ads really were intended to influence an election or not. Uh, The public doesn't really have a problem, I think, understanding that organizations that spend virtually all of their money on one form of political advocacy or another should be defined as, as political committees and should be subject to the same rules across the board. But this has been a problem at the FEC. It's a topic that's in litigation right now. I think my own personal view is, and my and my votes at the commission reflect this, that there are groups out there who really ought to be defined as political committees that are, are not. And they are not disclosing the information that I think they are required to under the law.
0: And so in terms of who can try to fix this, I mean, there are a few places. Uh, some have thought the IRS would be the place to fix this. And then we had the controversy over the uh, supposed targeting of Tea Party groups. Uh, There have been attempts in Congress, but this, like many other things, has become mired in partisan conflict. And then there's the Federal Election Commission that has been looking at this. And, of course, there's litigation. Uh, What do you think uh, on these multiple fronts is most likely to lead to improvements in disclosure?
1: Well, I think any one of those uh, actors in Washington could play a really positive role in improving disclosure, but I like to keep it close to home. I see that uh, what we could do, we are faced with complaints on a on a regular basis as to um, uh, people out there see groups operating in the political sphere, and they say, sure looks like a political committee to me, and they file complaints, and we have a couple of problems with that. One is um, breaching the Ideological divide on the Commission to try and and find common ground on these issues. This is something that the Commission used to do a much better job of. You don't have to go back too many years in order to find a Commission that could resolve political committee cases uh, in a way that this Commission doesn't seem to be able to. In the uh, in cases that arose out of the um, 2004 election, for example, the Commission entered into conciliation agreements, that's our term of art for for settling cases, with a number of groups involving millions of dollars of penalties. There were groups on both sides of the aisle that the commission agreed by majorities, by bipartisan majorities, were operating as political committees, even though they hadn't organized themselves that way under various provisions of the tax code. And we were willing to pursue that. We were willing to look at facts on the ground not just parse their the wording of their advertisement but look at the entire panoply of their activities and make reasonable decisions about what it what it means to have the major purpose of political activity under the law and we can't seem to get there anymore we can't we can't find the consensus as to what the standard ought to be and i think that half the commission is ignoring precedents that were set long ago on a bipartisan basis. But another problem that we face here is just the backlog of cases. Cases are getting bottled up here at the commission. We can't even get them out the door so that if somebody disagrees with whatever the disposition was, they could sue and bring it to the courts and perhaps get um, a different determination or a conclusive determination that way.
0: Well, I want to turn to the FEC because there's been so much controversy over it in the last few years with many saying that the agency has become ineffective because in its most important cases, it seems to deadlock three to three along party or ideological lines. Do you agree with the assessment that the agency has become ineffective? And if so, uh, what do you think explains what's going on?
1: Uh, I do think that the agency has become far more ineffective than it used to be. I've I've seen a, a, a couple of little glimmers of hope recently. Uh, I don't want to make too much out of them. uh, But uh, I do think that, as as, as I said before, the agency was far more effective a few years ago than it is today. I think there are a lot of reasons for that. It is in part a reflection of the greater polarization in Washington in general. And since commissioners are appointed by the folks in Congress who are polarized to begin with and have strong feelings on campaign finance law. It's not surprising that that polarization would be reflected here at the FEC, an agency that is by law split evenly between the parties. Um, So I think we've gotten further apart than we used to be. And we've also lost, I think, the consensus among commissioners that no matter where we started the goal ought to be for us to find some common ground to reach across and try and find compromises try and find some place that four or more commissioners could land in order to provide guidance to all the political actors out there in order to have clear rules in order to resolve cases so that people don't have cases hanging over their heads for years on end and complainants can find out what happened to the complaints that they filed and the public can find out what the law is and whether people were complying with the law in a reasonably contemporaneous fashion. I think that one problem is that half the commission is um, uh, has adopted a strategy that they only vote together. Uh, it's very, very rare to find any votes where, where one or more Republican commissioners disagrees with their colleagues. So if you're trying to find four votes, if you're trying to come up with a majority on the commission, we used to have three paths to get to four votes. You could find two D's and two R's or three D's and one R or three R's and one D. Two of those three paths are foreclosed right now because um, all the Republican commissioners will only vote together. So we have to get all of them or we can't get any of them there used to be an understanding amongst commissioners that if one commissioner felt very strongly and and didn't want to compromise on a particular issue that person could do that without tanking the entire process and uh and dragging the entire commission down around that 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 individual's convictions but now If one commissioner feels really strongly on the other side, that person is likely to be driving the train on the other side. So not only do I have to get all three of them, but I have to negotiate with the person who is likely to be the furthest away from my initial starting position. And that makes it much, much harder to get to four votes. So I think that's a problem. I think uh, we have also lost a shared commitment to timely enforcement of the law. Uh, For a variety of reasons, it is much more difficult to get cases resolved, even even on a 3-3 split, just to get the case out the door is very difficult. I, I tried to introduce a resolution, a new directive earlier this year that would force us to vote on matters within six months of when we get a recommendation from our staff as to what we should do, and I couldn't get agreement on that because half the commission, again, wanted to reserve the right of any commissioner to hold up any case for as long as they wanted to. And that just disserves the public But also, even the people that get complaints filed against them, the political class, it's no good for them to have these things hanging over their heads, and yet we cannot get a commitment to work harder to resolve these cases. We've got a backlog of over 60 cases right now, cases sitting on commissioners' desks waiting for commissioners to vote, and we we can't get resolution of them because at every stage of the process, there is just this slow walking of procedural steps uh, that drags it all out we can't even get agreement on how often we should meet. I mean, we used to have it sort of standard that we would at least meet four times a month, um, twice in executive session to consider enforcement matters, twice in open session to consider policy matters. And we can't even get agreement to have at least four meetings a month anymore, which I think is pretty sad for six government employees who are paid by the taxpayers to work full time, and they're not willing to show up for meetings four times a month. I mean, that, that to me is pretty embarrassing.
0: Well, how much of this do you think is personal? It, it seems pretty clear that you and Don McGahn, the former Republican commissioner, clashed often, uh, but things haven't improved on the collegiality front much since he's left. The press reported on a fight over donuts versus bagels for an FEC anniversary party, and recently, Commissioner Carolyn Hunter, a Republican, criticized FEC Chair and Ravel, a Democrat, for going on the Daily Show and making some comments about the effectiveness of the FEC. Do you think this is about personality, or do you think the personality clashes are the result of a ideological split?
1: Well, I don't think it's about personality, um, and I I think the the press likes to play these kinds of Issues up. I mean, the whole donuts versus bagels problem. I never heard about it. I don't think it really was a fight, Um, but I think that the press likes to make it personal. I think what you see is a lot of frustration, a lot of frustration. But I hope that um, even when I'm having my most vehement arguments with my colleagues on the other side, that it's it should be clear that what we're arguing about is how the law ought to be enforced how the law ought to be administered and not about whether we like each other that that's that really doesn't play into it at all i mean i, I know all these people reasonably well i've met their families they have lovely children it's not personal it's it's all about a on my on, on my side i can only speak for myself but uh, i feel a great sense of frustration with the fact that i can't get agreement and commitment to move the cases more quickly, I can't get agreement to issue regulations. I I can't get agreements for us to be proactive when we see that there is confusion out there about the law. We should proactively take up these issues and and issue better guidance. And we're not we're not doing that. Uh, and my frustration is based on the fact that what I see are. Some commissioners who are okay with the commission not being terribly functional.
0: Well, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, it seems like the 3-3 split is the new uh, 4-0, it's the new 4-2, it's the new safe harbor, in the sense that everybody knows if the commission's deadlocked, that the law's uncertain, and then they can do whatever they want, as well as the issue of delay. Delay gives room to do more things because you uh, don't have an adverse decision against you. And I'm wondering if that is sort of a deliberate strategy on the part of Republican commissioners who might be ideologically opposed to some of the mission of the fEC itself
1: well, i'm not going to try and get into the heads of any of my colleagues i could I could speculate but um, uh, but i i won't um, i I do think that there is concrete evidence based on how people vote and how people act and what they're willing to commit to do as to whether they're interested in really seeing this agency being a, a vibrant, helpful government agency, as opposed to just sitting by and letting the law erode. And I think that, that you raise an important point that the delay also uh, contributes to the erosion of the law because people look around and see what other folks are doing. And every, every cycle, there's somebody out there who is doing something that other people look at and say, whoa, I didn't think that was legal. And if nothing happens, either because we deadlock or because they, we're sitting on the cases for too long, then the conventional wisdom out there becomes, oh, it's okay because nothing happened when that other guy did it, and that becomes the new normal. That becomes the new baseline in the next cycle. What was outrageous last time becomes the baseline now, and then um, the aggressive players out there will find even more outrageous things to do. And before you know it, the law is pretty much in tatters.
0: I, I wanna ask, also ask you about The staff at the FEC because there was a recent survey of satisfaction among staff at government agencies and FEC staff satisfaction was near the bottom of the list. Do you think that's a spillover from the fact that the commissioners are deadlocking on these important questions and that there's there is lack of uh, cross party agreement on things.
1: Well, I think that's that's definitely a factor. I think we have a lot of great staff who are very dedicated to the mission of this agency, and I think it's frustrating for them to see perhaps some of the commissioners don't seem to be as dedicated as, as they are to the mission of the agency. But even more than that, when commissioners aren't working to find agreement so that we can give guidance to the staff, when I, mean, I was talking about giving guidance to the, to the public and to the political actors out there, but we also need to give guidance to our own staff. And it's very hard for them when they can't get clear guidance from their bosses as to how they're supposed to go about doing their job. So, um, I, I completely understand how frustrating that must be for the people who work here and, and really believe and understand how important the work of this agency is.
0: If you could wave a magic wand and remake the FEC in, in, in a, whatever form you thought would be the most effective as a regulator of federal uh, campaign finance law, what would the agency look like? How would it be different than it is today?
1: I think that you know a lot of people have talked about the three three structure and um, have offered various proposals for how to how to break that um, that gridlock of course i could I, if the problem were just that we don't agree, and there's 3-3. Three, three. I could I could solve the problem of gridlock single-handedly by simply voting with the Republicans on every case, and there wouldn't be any more gridlock. I don't think the law would be very good, but there certainly wouldn't be gridlock. So I don't think gridlock alone is the, um, is the biggest problem over here. And any other method of, besides 3-3, three, three, of deciding things would raise the issue of, well, who gets to be the tiebreaker? I think that, um, you know, there are There are some folks who would just like to blow up the building and um, not literally, of course, start all over again with a whole new agency where people are not picked because party leaders are comfortable with those particular commissioners, but rather because of their uh, general integrity and uh, reputation um, in the country at large as being People who will do the right thing. You don't necessarily need somebody who's in the weeds on campaign finance law in order to make good judgments. You know, we could. We some people have proposed a panel of former judges or um, uh, a structure more like the Federal Reserve Board. I I think that those kinds of structures could work. It would depend a lot on who the initial batch of commissioners were, because that would set the precedent going forward. So a lot would ride on that initial decision. But I think that, let me just say that I think the current structure could work and has worked in the past, but what we need to do is get back to a common understanding amongst all commissioners as to what our mission is and what our job is. Because disagreements between Republican and Democratic commissioners is nothing new at the FEC. But what we've lost was the sense that that we used to have on both sides of the table, that even if we started in different places, it was our job to try to find a place where four or more commissioners could land, even if nobody thought it was a perfect resolution, in order to keep the work of the agency going forward and, um, and provide guidance to the folks who are out there engaging in politics, need to know what the rules are. And, and just letting them make up their own rules, I think, is not a very good system.
0: So my final question is, what should we be looking for to come out of the FEC in the next few months? Will we be seeing anything? Will there be uh, new rules on super PACs? Will there be movement on disclosure? What what do you see coming up as we approach the uh, really hot part of the 2016 election season?
1: Well, it's hard to make predictions around here. Um, As you know, I personally uh, would like to see new rules on disclosure and on uh, super PACs, and I have made various proposals on that. The last time we even suggested to the public that we might consider new rules on disclosure, we got overwhelming public support for for doing that. I think the public really wants to see more transparency, really wants to see better rules uh, that... Define political activities in a way that makes sense to ordinary human beings. That isn't an exercise in how many angels are dancing on the on the head of a pin. Uh, that and um, would they'd like to see an agency that enforces coordination rules according to what a common sense understanding of the word coordination means, and doesn't try to pretend that things are independent when anybody looking at it would say, well, obviously these groups are are working hand in glove. I think there is so much more that we could do and that I would like to see us do. Now, but you asked what we would do. I do think that there are, um, as I said before, a couple of glimmers of hope. I've seen a couple of cases that are still working their way through the pipeline, but should be becoming public within the next few months. That might surprise people, where we actually did get four votes to agree on what the law means. I I thought that the advisory opinion that we issued recently, um, where we deadlocked on part of it but answered some of the questions, was really interesting for um, not so much the areas where we agreed, although that was informative, but also... The extent to which we disagreed, it was not the typical three-three split where people were on polar opposites of the issues when it comes to testing the waters and what candidates could do in the early parts of their campaign. But there were more differences in, in emphasis, where some of us were willing to say, well, yes, there are certain activities that definitely trigger candidacy status. Automatically. And other commissioners were not willing to go that far, but what they were willing to say was that they could be evidence of uh, a decision by the candidate that they had already, that person had already decided to run and should be therefore governed by all of the rules that govern candidates. They can't be operating in this uh, free-for-all world indefinitely while they appear to be conducting political activities to advance their own campaign. Now, how all this will play out in enforcement, you know, I don't want to be overly sanguine about that. But I do think that there is perhaps some reason to believe that we may be able to issue some guidance in some small areas that might be helpful going forward. Not, not what we should be doing, not what I would like it to see us doing, uh, and certainly not as quickly as I would like to see us doing it. But I do think that it's, it, it's possible that we may actually surprise people with a few of these decisions.
0: Well, on that very, very slight glimmer of hope, that's probably a good place for us to, uh, <laughs> to conclude. Uh, Ellen Weintraub, I want to thank you for joining the podcast. I uh, learned a lot, and I appreciate the conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Rick. Anytime. Keep hope alive.
0: The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared hasson The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band BeatFN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hasson. Goodbye.